Good morning. This morning we're going to finish our series on God's priceless promises, but we're going to take a little different tack on how we do that this morning. Sometimes when I have a little bit of free time, I turn on Grit TV, and they'll play sometimes back-to-back John Wayne movies, and in all the movies I've watched, he's only died once. And the premise of all of his movies seems to be, I will return. I'm coming back for you. I'm not going to leave you. General John MacArthur, I will return. I think more poignant, a mother to a preschooler who has dropped off her child at the nursery or cherubs or the twos and three years old, and she says to her little one, I'll be back, enjoy, have fun, as the kid feels abandoned and orphaned for the first few times until all of a sudden they get to meet Mr. Bob and they just have a ball. Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. That's both a positive and a negative, though, to that idea. For example... You know, you're a child and all of a sudden you hear someone say, your mom will be home soon. Oh, good. Or I remember the days when I was a youngster, I heard these words on more than a few occasions, just wait till your father gets home. I hated those words. Because I would have been disciplined and then the real discipline would have been affected after my dad got home. Gulp. And I had the brace for it. Jesus has promised that he's going to come back for us. Amen? Amen. He's coming back for us. And that's a priceless promise. Jesus also promised that he was coming back to judge the world. Gulp. It's a frightening promise that the lost would love to forget. And so the the lost say things like, how in the world can you believe this stuff? The bodily resurrection of Jesus? Heaven? Dead is dead. Nothing's changed. Or they doubt God's existence because of all the suffering in the world. How many times have I talked to someone and I'm presenting them with the gospel, with the saving news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, and they'll say, yeah, but if God were real, there wouldn't be so much suffering. Honest question. But often it is thrown up in my face to get me off task, off target. Or they doubt that God will judge anyone and send them to hell. They believe all of us will get there somehow. Now that is not taught in the scriptures. That's called universalism. Unless someone embraces the death of Jesus Christ as their payment for their sin, they are lost These people of contempt, as they ridicule us, they'll say, history has been uniform. 
There's only material. There's no supernatural. Matter of fact, atheism. God does not exist. And in our culture, the voices are getting louder and louder, and the people are becoming better and better connected. They are becoming more and more influential. And how many students have gone to college with their young faith intact, only to be shredded the very first semester or the second semester by one professor who has an out for believers in Christ? And they'll shred them. They are mockers. Some of these mockers are even within the church. They shred our faith in the promises of God, these priceless promises. And so my question this morning is, how do you deal with contrary voices when you are holding on to the promises of God, sometimes for dear life, and someone comes along and says, that is ridiculous. How can you hold that? How can you believe that? How can you stake your future on that? It is just words on a page. Have you been there? Have you listened to those people? Have they done a number on you sometimes? Yes, I think all of us have met people like that. So turn with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 14. Let me give you the background of the passage. In the second chapter of 2 Peter, the author teaches against the despicable doctrines and the practices of false teachers. He reminds his readers of things they should already know. But he also reminds them to stay on the alert because there are going to be people that come along and are going to try to move them off center. So in verses 3 through 10, Peter is going to teach his readers and us how do you deal with scoffers? Now, he's going to scoff specifically about the second coming of Christ. But I'm going to suggest this morning that there are other scoffers who look at other promises and treat them with contempt. And so anyone who does that, I think what Peter is going to tell us this morning will fit the bill. Anyone who negates the promises of God. Verses 3 through 10. Let me read it for you. Follow along. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, now it's not in the text, but listen for the sneer in this statement. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Here's the fact. Scoffers will come. Don't be surprised. When people come into your life and begin to try to shred your belief in the Bible, in God, in the work of the cross. These false teachers in verse 3 chase after their own passions, their arrogant snobbery and disdain for the idea of a coming judgment has led them to sexual perversion. In verse 4, they ask, where is the promise of his coming? What they're, what they're really asking is, where is the coming judgment? Did you hear the sneer? I get to sin willfully. There's no payment due. There's no supernatural interventions. Everything is natural. And this New Testament promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ they reject. They reject. See, they assume, at the end of verse 4, that God does not intervene in this world. I guess they've never prayed, have they? Amen? They've never prayed. Now here's how they do it in verses 5 and 6. They do it through deliberate denial. In verse 5, they deliberately overlook this fact. They claim willful ignorance. And yet, God in this passage in verse 5 calls it a fact. See, they forget purposefully by disregarding information. They bury their heads in the sand. What do they deliberately deny? Verse 5, it's creation. What is this fact? That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Here's the fact. God spoke and the universe came into existence. God spoke and the dry land separated from the waters. Verse 6, what else do they deny? Fill in the blank in your outline. They deny a global flood. Verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. See, Peter believed in a universal flood. And God the Creator also is God the Judge, both. 
I understand as I prepare this message why the work of Answers in Genesis is so critical for our culture. Because within the first 11 chapters of Genesis, creation and flood appear. And many in our culture say, it never happened. See, we are all the product of a big bang, right? I don't think so. I don't know how someone in the medical field can look at the complexity of the human body and say this was all created by chance. It makes no sense. And to say that the flood never took place, go look at the Grand Canyon. Go look at other places around our world where you can see catastrophic flood and erosion that took place. In verse 7, he reminds them and us that God's spoken word is powerful. Verse 7, but by the same word, the same word that created and brought the flood, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, God's spoken word is keeping the universe in order. But one day, there will be a day of judgment and destruction. And he says, last time it was by water, this time it will take place by fire. Now, I think the core of the message is found in verses 8 to 10 because... I found myself at times over these years asking some of these same questions. See, what's the question? Why is God so long at coming? Why does God seem to be so slow in affecting his will in this world? And no, let's make it personal, God, in my life. Why do I have to ask you repeatedly why do I see the wicked prospering and I am not? God, I wish I could understand you. That's the questions of both the skeptic but also the believer. And so the reasons for God's seeming delays are answered in three verses, in verses 8 to 10. Number one, the first one, God's timing. Verse 8, I don't know how many times I've heard this quoted in the past, because he says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What? Does it sound like a riddle almost? What, what, what is he saying there? Well, as I studied... I realized, and I, I, as I thought about this, I knew it was true, but especially in this verse, God counts time differently than man. Amen? Amen? Now think about that. God counts time differently than us. He says, don't forget this. Do not overlook this one fact. Swindoll makes this statement our finite perception of time is irrelevant. 
God is timeless. What comprises time on earth in no way impacts God's master plan. And see, scoffers rest their point on the basis of a human view of time. We are not to do that. God has all of eternity to accomplish what he needs to. And we're saying to God in our private prayer closet, God, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Or now, now. And God is saying, my will will be described and it will be lived out and I will reveal it and it will come to pass in my time. In my time. I think how much frustration we could lessen out of our lives as a follower of Jesus if we would just understand this one truth. God's time and my time are not in sync. So we don't forget whose time is better. God's time. God's good all the time in his timing all the time. It's good, good, good but I don't like it sometimes. So one reason for God's seeming delay is that God's timing is not my timing. Secondly, verse 9, God's heart. In verse 9 is the very heart of God. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. See, God wants as many to be saved as possible. God's time schedule is modified by patience. And his patience flows out of his mercy and his love. This is God's desire. It's not his decree. He doesn't force salvation on any of us. And here it is. Here's our view. Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, come today. Amen? Amen? And you know what? My life will be great. Things will be good. That's my view. That's your view. What's God's view? If I send Jesus now, some will be left out. Some will be left out. I'm going to wait a little longer. He gives time for people to understand their need for a Savior and to embrace Christ, but I also realize that he also gives us time to get our lives back on track. And I need God's patience at times because there are times my life is way off track, and I need to have my priorities re assessed. So why does God seemingly delay? Because of his timing is not our timing. His heart is bigger than our heart. And thirdly, verse 10, God's plan. God's plan. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bonds will be burned up and dissolved, so, and the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. 
See, God's plan is that one day he will act in judgment. It will happen. The day of the Lord will come, period. It will come. It will happen. And he says it will happen suddenly. It'll happen without warning. It'll happen destructively. And all will be exposed. Scoffers, scoff on. The God that we serve keeps his promises. Amen? Amen. He keeps his promises. And I don't care how much you want to say, life just goes on, and when you die, that's all there is. Because how I read the scriptures, it's not true. So starting in verse 11, he moves from the scoffers now to the saints. That's us, folks. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved... All these material things that we count on and want, covet, work for, will all be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Verses 11 through 14, he answers the question, so what? If this is all true, and it is, so what? Verse 11, it should be a motivation for holy living. There is a strong motivational expectation for a holy life from God. And he mentions holiness and godliness. Holiness set apart from the world. Godliness set apart towards God. And as we live this life in that arena and the scoffers look at us, a holy life leads to evangelism. Why? Because you're so different. You don't fit in the culture that you find yourself in. And sometimes you are so afraid of looking like such a weird duck. Folks, you are a weird duck. Amen? Amen. You're a weird duck. (laughs) Someone takes it to heart over here. Should I get you a pan of water? You can do a little paddling over there. Holy living leads to opportunities to share our faith in Jesus Christ. Don't run from it. And notice in verses 12, 13, and 14, the word that is repeated is waiting, waiting, waiting. It's this seeming delay again. We're waiting for the eternal state. In verse 12, we're waiting with eager anticipation. Verse 13, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. And the purpose of prophetic truth is not speculation, but motivation 
How should we live in light of the fact this will all take place? Look at verse 14, waiting. Waiting again. Waiting, yet diligent to grow spiritually. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, in light of these things, our behavior is linked to the expectation of the Lord's soon return. And he says in verse 14, we are to give every effort. He says, be diligent. Give every effort to grow spiritually. Become mature. Be morally clean. That's without spot. Be blameless. Be at peace with God. So what does this mean for us? I've got four things. I probably had eight before I cut them down. Number one, we need to stay on the alert. Jesus will return. Amen? Amen. Jesus will return. And however, I think we've fallen into business as usual. Many of us here remember 9-11, that horrific day. And after that day, there was this heightened awareness of what level of alert are we on today? The arsenal became a fortress. And we all were heightenedly aware of our surroundings. What are they doing? Who's there? But it's been years since 9-11. Do we know what the alert is today, folks? What's the level of the alert? We don't have a clue. And I think we don't even care. We have moved from peak alert to ho-hum. And we say we believe a promise that the Lord is coming back. He's coming back for us as his bride. He's coming back to judge the world. Ho-hum. Ho-hum. I think maybe we need to, every, every day, at least look up once into the heavens and wonder, is today the day? And if you're listening to my voice and you have not embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin, today's the day. Because you don't know what's going to happen in this world or in your life. I don't know how much more clear to make that. You understand that God loves you that you do bad things on a regular basis because we all do, it is in our nature. We need a Savior who has paid the price for my sins. I can't pay for them. I keep messing up. Jesus paid the price. I can embrace that as a gift. Don't put it off. Don't believe that it's business as usual. This is the day. Are you ready for his return? Number two, I said it before, but I think we need to impress this upon our thinking. God's timing is not our timing. And I don't know why we keep forgetting this important truth. We ask God to do things, yes, and there's a reason we say, God, please do this quickly. And there are times when God's already working on it before we even pray for it. Amen? Amen. He does that. 
But there are times he says, I've logged your request. I've got some other things to put in place. Just think if Jesus came back 50 years ago, I would have been lost. 50 years ago, I was alive and I was a good church person and I was hopelessly lost. And God, in his mercy, delayed the coming of Jesus Christ long enough so I could hear the gospel for myself. What's he waiting on? Number three. Number three. We need God's heart for lost people. We need God's heart for lost people. There are people that he created... There are people he has died for and we walk past them sometimes every day and don't give them even a moment's notice. And God is crying for them. His heart is strong towards them. He wants them saved. And I think if we adopt his heart as our heart, we're going to see people as he sees people. Lost. Sheep without a shepherd. Number four, get your act together. I mean, that's kind of a paraphrase of verse 14. Get your act together. Live it out with others. Not as fanatics or religious quacks. But would you keep looking up with hope? And don't be fazed by the hardened skeptics that are around us in our culture. I challenged you last Sunday to send me an email and to take an assessment for yourself to assess where you're at spiritually and how you can grow. The offer still stands. But get your act together. Would you allow your holy and godly lives to speak volumes to a watching world? Why are you so strange? Because Jesus is in the center of my life. The Holy Spirit empowers me to say no to self and yes to God. Because when I used to do little things like you're doing, I found that it was empty and shallow and it left me always wanting more. I found a different way. And sometimes we need to find someone else to walk this life with so we can live it out with others. Now why do we need to apply this? The world has rejected judgment. We're all going to get there by and by. This world needs to see us who acknowledge judgment and God's grace, both. And we have avoided judgment through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we have placed our faith in him, as he has empowered us to live lives that are holy and godly over time. The world needs to see that. We just don't come to church for a rah-rah session. We come because he's worthy of our praise. And we come so we can leave here 
equipped to live in a world that is filled with scoffers. Let's pray.